Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. If you already use or want to use PowerShell to manage Microsoft Exchange, check out their free Microsoft Exchange PowerShell guide. Five pages and ready-to-use PowerShell snippets and real-life examples. The link is in the show notes. My name is Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Toby. So by the time people in the audience hear this episode, I will be physically in Berlin for the European Power Platform Conference. So that's that's on the first week of April. And and more importantly, though, conference obviously is the, is the big thing there. But while I'm there, I will get to have a fancy dinner with proper wine in great company. And I think, Toby, you're not joining us, so it's it's a splendid company. But it's been too long since the last time this, this was a possibility really to travel in Europe, go and meet with people, have steaks, have wine, enjoy. And just three years ago, this this was a regular work week for me. I would just pop to whatever city, I would meet with people, have a conference, have a couple of business meetings. And it's funny now that I've known that I will be going to Berlin since December 2021, so about five months ahead. And this has been sort of the highlight of my spring. Do I have everything packed? Do I have the flight tickets? Do I have, have the hotel and everything else? So it's it's been fun reflecting that now it's a special thing. Three years ago, it was, yeah, I have to go to Barcelona. Sucks, but somebody has to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor me. Uh, Indeed. This, this reminds me of my travel fatigue that I had when I ran my training business and consulting business. Um, you know, before, if, if you talk to someone who does not travel that often, they would say, wow, what a glamorous life. That is awesome. You get to stay in hotels, have fancy food and, you know, just be a jet setter. But when you're actually living that lifestyle, it's quite the contrary that you fairly quickly get fed up with it and you just kind of miss home in a way. So I, I definitely can relate now after, you know, these few years with the pandemic and nobody being able to travel I also look forward to, I think we have an event in December or November this year in Copenhagen with one of the conferences. And, you know, there's so many people that we know that's going to show up. I think you will be there. I will be there. We haven't met in, I think, four or five years. (laughs) Because even before the pandemic, I did not go to conferences the last two years. So it's been quite some time since I actually met up with people. So I can relate to that. You know, that's my highlight in, you know, in my line of work right now. It's I'm really excited to get to travel somewhere, meet people, just have a good chat and have a good time, sink some ideas, um, you know, socialize a bit. Because in the end, building these networks uh, in person is, you know, what got me into the the career that I have now. If I would not have been networking and met all the people that I've met throughout the years, I would probably not be doing what I do today because I do that because I met people during conferences. So definitely worth it. And also when you just said, I am going to a conference physically, you understand that the landscape really changed. In the past, we just say, I'm going to Berlin, not I'm going to Berlin in person physically. <laughs> so you have to emphasize that a little bit. But I'm, I'm happy that things are shaping up with the pandemic that we can really open the doors and, and see each other more. Enough about that. 
we're all looking forward to that. For me, spring is here. Uh, so I'm doing, uh, you know, this whole new house owner for the second time kind of exercise. And I'm trying to figure out which pressure washer I need to purchase. And I need this to clean the fence and the wooden decks and the, the stone areas. I mean, we have a pretty small house and a small garden, but you know, it still needs to clean uh, or, or get clean. And I mean, if you thought it's difficult to do a proper security architecture for a distributed cloud system operating cross-region on a global scale, selecting the right pressure washer for your home is more difficult because there are literally 500 to choose from, different brands. And I just, I opened the websites to all the hardware stores and, and price runner and all these comparison sites. It's ridiculous. 10,200 results. How am I, what am I supposed to do with that? And then you sort by price and then all the reviews suck. Then you sort by reviews and then the price go up. And then I have no idea where to even start. So I might just go over to my neighbor and say, hey, do you have a pressure washer I can use for, for today or the weekend? <laughs> so, so that's my challenge for now is when I'm not working, I think I mentioned this fairly regularly in, in our WhatsApp moments here. Uh, when I'm not working, I try to spend as much analog time as possible and getting a, a proper pressure washer is part of that. So I, I really hope I find something, but it does exhaust me a little bit because I need to spend so much time digitally doing research for something so analog. So hopefully I can just walk into a store and say, you know what, give me something that works, take my money. I don't care anymore. I, you know, I just want to get started. So hopefully I can do that. I will be on the same boat about two, three months from now, once, once the new house is built and I, I, I get this thought in my head that, yeah, I really want to wash my car now manually, not drive to like a washing machine, but actually wash it myself. And then I need the pressure washer or the power washer. And I might come back to you on this topic later on. <laughs> what what did mean, you if, end if up you, with? If you don't mind, you can start doing your research right now. Okay. And whatever you come up with, you can just send my way. And it would be good if you can do it before the weekend. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. So, <laughs> All right. so today, this is episode 128, preparing for the new cybersecurity architect certification, the SE100. So there's a new certification announced. Toby, did you know about this or was this news for you as well when this was announced? So when they announced it, this was definitely news to me. I have not been I mean, I'm not closely tied to the circles of certification or, or the teams creating the certification. So this was news to me, but I did kind of suspect something would come in this area because I know we talked about this in one episode. I don't recall the number. We talked about the AZ500 or the, yeah, what's the actual name of that one? I think it's Microsoft Certified Azure Security Engineer Associate. So that's like a two-star badge you get as an associate. So we, I think we mentioned in that episode that like this is a two-star badge, which means this is not as deep as it goes. There's probably something else that will be needed to get the three stars or, or like the, the expert kind of badge. I had no idea what that was going to be. But I really like this title as well because all the other security-related titles are a bit more specific. This is more Microsoft Cybersecurity Architect. That's it. If you know, if you get this credential, then you are a cybersecurity architect expert whatever that means. And that's what we're going to explore today. I, I slightly dislike the cyber 
prefix for the cybersecurity because that always cool, reminds though. me of the movies from the 1995 and 1998 where they have cybersecurity things. But but regardless, so this will be available in limited beta in April 2022. So around this time you're hearing this episode because this one we are recording a few weeks prior to, to publishing this one. And I'm, I'm mentioning limited beta because it's it's not open for all. And usually this is because Microsoft is probably expecting a lot of people to sign up for this. And during the beta, they can they can sort of balance the scores, see how people actually perform on the beta. And, and then before releasing this generally, they can sort of tweak the, the, the how, how would you say, how challenging the exam is going to be. So there's a, uh, one, I've, I almost meant to say a couple, but there's one prerequisite that you have to do before you should be doing this and in order to achieve this three-star certification. And these are all the ones we've sort of been discussing before. So there's the SC200, SC300, MS500, or AZ500. And, and you mentioned AZ500, Toby. Was it so that, that you did the AZ500 as well? I, I think I did. Uh, I think I did it before you because we spoke about that in, in one of the episodes. Yeah. And I recall you got the virtual lab exercise inside of the exam and I did not. So I think we had an episode on online certification where we also talked about that, uh, which was a bit interesting because the same here, I suppose you will get some kind of hands-on labs to to complete or some hands-on exercise or or a challenge. I did not get that. I've never had that for any of my exams, which is you know, kind of disappointing because I'm looking forward to them because I really like to go in and tweet things and you know, get them set up. But yeah, we both did that one. I think I did mine in 2019, so it's quite some time ago. And I've done this renewal assessment thing that you get for all the exams now these days. But I, I really liked it. So I have the prerequisite for taking this exam. But just to iterate there on the on the different prerequisites, you, you have these four ones, um, which is the SC200, which is the Security Operations Analyst Associate. Uh, I have not looked into this one yet, but I think you deliver trainings or something on these topics. So maybe I will ask you for some advice in this area if I want to take that. The SE300 is Identity and Access Administrator Associate. And the AC500 is the, the one we talked about, Azure Security Engineer Associate. And then the MS500 is something I might be looking at as well, which is Microsoft 365 Security Administrator, uh, Administrator Associate. So... Only one of these are required, and then you can take the SC100. You can, I believe you can take the SC100 regardless, but you don't earn the credentials or the badge, which is the cybersecurity architect expert. So two certifications required, the SC100, the new one, and one of the, the four we just mentioned. So exactly. I think we're both then qualified to go for the SC100 at this point and, and see if we can get that one. Yeah, I, I occasionally I delivered the AZ500 uh, training uh, remotely now, uh, but more often it seems there's demand for the SC200 and SC300. So SC200, it's it's uh, Microsoft Sentinel, Defender for Cloud, Defender for Endpoint. Very practical, very hands-on. How do you configure? How do you set this up? 
and SC300 is, is almost solely focused on Azure AD identities, B2B, B2C, and again, super hands-on on how do you actually build these things. And now with SC100, it's, it's more an architectural approach. So I'm anticipating perhaps less hands-on and more understanding on how do the different bits and pieces fall in together uh, in an enterprise environment. So as you said, definitely do this after, even if you do this first, you still have to pass one of the, one of the four options. Uh, if I had to choose now, I would go with SC200 because it's Defender for Cloud and Sentinel. And I feel those will be in a fairly relevant role as well for the SC100. So, so let's talk a bit about the skills measured for SC100. So, so there's four main areas, and, and we'll put the link in the show notes on the, on, the, on the details here as well. But the first one is zero trust. About one third of the focus of the exam is going to be zero trust. So, so what can you take away from the demands and, and sort of the, the topics that you could expect to get questions on for the exam? Yeah, so, so what I like about this is like zero trust being one of the pillars that you need to understand here is it's not super tech. It's like, it's also business goals and it's the um, idea behind the cybersecurity or, or your security posture. It's not just, here's a firewall, here's your VPN or point to site connection and this is how it's configured, but it's also like the overarching uh, business goals and I think they they mentioned that you should understand the MCRA. So if you're tuning in and you've heard that before, uh, you would know that this is the Microsoft Cybersecurity Reference Architectures. And that's something that exists in docs.microsoft.com slash security slash cybersecurity reference architecture, or just go to MCRA um, on Google and you'll find it. This is actually pretty good. I've used this in a couple of occasions to, to kind of try and understand how do I measure up according to like the best practices and how, how it's supposed to work? And then I can compare what I'm doing in our organization with uh, you know, the, the best practices that they set forth. And the MCRA, I really like it. It's like a bunch of starting templates for security architecture. You can compare, so you get like a comparison reference for security capabilities. You can learn what Microsoft capabilities you have. So like this zero trust thing, it's not just, like I mentioned, understand how to configure this point-to-site VPN thing with the inbound and outbound rules and whatever. Those things are important, but perhaps that's more AZ-500. And this then would be more, as I read it, I haven't done the exam, so I cannot say for sure, but as I read it, this is also understanding the business requirements and you know, not just the technical re requirements, but also how do you solve the problem with the technology that exists at Microsoft? And how can we use that existing technology to increase the, the security posture of our organization? So I think that's like the main takeaway I have just reading it through this. And, and I really know that this MCRA or Microsoft Cybersecurity Reference Architecture is super beneficial. I, as I said, I take a look on this quite a lot. And you have this kind of CISO workshops. I don't know if you've taken a look at those. With Microsoft, you have these Chief Information Security Officer or CISO workshops with different modules like Microsoft Cybersecurity Briefing and Security Management and all these kind of things. 
So inside of this uh, kind of MTRA, you will find links to a bunch of things that are super relevant. So for me, if I were to ramp up for this, and they now mention that MCRA is part of uh, the Zero Trust thing here, I would probably just go there, take a look what they recommend, run through some of the modules, some of the related content that they list, and start from there. And, and then kind of tick up the boxes. Most likely, if you're trying to achieve this certification, you have worked in this field, and maybe you're already using it, maybe you're administering your IT systems, maybe you are already a cybersecurity expert in, in areas and just want to get the credentials. And then, you know, these things, it's going to be easy to tick off a lot of the things on the, on the checklist, perhaps. But that's what I'm taking away from a requirement saying you need zero trust. What about you? I agree on the MCRA. And if somebody is looking for a link to that, we'll put that in the show notes. But what I usually use is aka.ms slash MCRA that takes you directly to the PowerPoint slides. And, and this is probably the key thing here for zero trust. Open the deck, have a look at the at the slides. There's a lot of moving parts in there. But that's that's probably the quickest way to understand more about this. There's also a zero trust ebook from Microsoft. I will I will remember to put a link in the show notes for that too. It's not too technical. It's more about the requirements and the planning and the and the overarching strategy on how do we do this in our organization. For the next bit, which is governance and compliance, that's about 20 to 25% of, of the exam will focus on governance and compliance. And I'd, I'd say this is more hands-on in the, in the sense so, so there's, there's non-technical bits here as well, but then there's really practical security design and configuration like conditional access, authentication, authorization, uh, as ready B2B and B2C and hybrid, of course. So these have all been covered in SC300 and AZ500 to a certain level. But I, I, I like to think that for those exams, it's more of the IT pro approach. How do I configure federated identities? That sort of an approach. And for this, it's more like, when do I configure this? And if I do, what are the upsides and the downsides? And what should I think uh, at the larger scale than just the, the act of configuring those? Yeah. And I, I also like that this is part of the exam, like governance and compliance or, or the GRC thing. Because, I mean, if you'll tune into this show, you know that I talk a lot about compliance. I love compliance and, you know, and love it in the way that it's a challenge. It's not easy to figure it out. But when you do figure certain parts out and you can move forward in this journey, you know, it, it feels really good. So, so, for example, where I'm doing right now in our organization is we're targeting a SOC 2 certification. I also know that by extension, we'll go for the ISO 27001. And that's also part of the GRC kind of requirements for this exam to understand some of those things. And I really like that. And, you know, it's like, how do you evaluate your security posture by using different benchmarks, like the ISO 27001? Understanding those things, how that maps to your requirements or your customers' requirements running on products that you're offering in the cloud as a SaaS to your customers. Then they will ask you, who's your cloud provider? And you say, Microsoft all right, how are they certified? Then you need to be able to answer that. And you can answer that because this is 
accessible from Microsoft Defender for Cloud. You can export the reports, but you can also export the results of your own uh, kind of compliance match in certain areas around that. So that's pretty, uh, pretty great. And I really like that this is now part of uh, the entire compliance or that compliance is part of, of this entire cybersecurity exam. So I'm super excited about that. You know, a lot of people I speak with, they say compliance, not my thing, not super thrilled about it. For me, I'm super excited about it. So I really <laughs> hope that I can get to do this exam and then maybe I will fail and I will learn, you know, areas where I can improve, which I'm kind of counting on. But yeah, I'm, I'm super thrilled about that. So you don't see that very often in the exams I've taken so far. You usually have either security or very technical things, but this is more take a step back, understand the wider landscape. And I really like that. And it's worth noting here, especially in the governance and compliance, one of the bullet points they list is Azure landing zones. And that's a vast topic. There's a lot of things to consider, but I don't think any of these go super deep in the sense. It's more about, can you position these capabilities at a larger scale? Do you understand when to use which and, and what are the benefits of the different services? So just like for the Azure Architect exams, which is the AZ305 now, and that requires the AZ104, the admin, admin certificate, this is more about putting and pulling everything together as opposed to going super deep on, on each individual bit. So the third area is security for infrastructure, also about 20 to 25%. So perhaps we're expecting about 50 to 60 questions. So this would be about 10, 15 questions on security for infra. So Azure AD domain services, securing the different workloads like IoT and data and database related services. And I'm expecting Microsoft to throw a couple of curveballs here because often you might have somebody really focused on Microsoft technologies, but now you're asking a question, perhaps how do you secure MySQL or MariaDB or something more open source, but still natively available in Azure as well. Any thoughts on, on, on this beyond the, the, the obvious? So I, I really like that it's design security for infrastructure. So it's not just, you know, answer how would you secure things with a firewall? Because this is more like the like we mentioned in the beginning. This is the expert level kind of uh, credential that you get, which usually requires you to think in the broader perspective. And um, they mention things like design a strategy to manage secrets, keys, and certificates. They don't they don't ask what should you use to manage them. Obviously, key vaults uh, might be a good option for that, but more designing a strategy around it or design a strategy for secure remote access. Also something we talked about several times in the episode, how do you securely remote uh, into something, into whatever it is, if it's a container, if it's a web app, if it's a, an SSH tunnel into something, if it's a VM, whatever. And this is about the designing security for infrastructure. So not just click the button, use Key Vault or use this firewall, but also like the, the broader design of that architecture. So I, I really look forward to trying this out um, because I'm sure when ramping up and studying for this, I will find a lot of things I have no idea about that I will really need to get my hands dirty with trying out. So hopefully they will also set up some kind of lab that we know in the past. And uh, they also added labs to, I think, GitHub or whatever. You could kind of do a hands-on lab. You can use Microsoft Learn to prepare for, for the exams. I hope they will create resources in that area 
otherwise my, my thoughts are similar to, to yours. Um, you know, all the requirements, like you mentioned, IoT and containers and, and container orchestration and things like that. Um, everything they mention is specify security baselines or specify security requirements for those things. So it's not about, you know, deep level understanding of exactly the container or the container orchestration perhaps, but you probably require some kind of deep level understanding of specifying the security requirements for those services and for those different type of workloads. So I'm, I'm also looking forward to that because I, you know, reading the list, I know that I've, I've touched perhaps 20 or 30% of the things that they mentioned, like the, the SQL database and, and, you know, some container instances and Kubernetes and app services, then a bunch of other things I never used. So to earn that credential, I would probably have to try that out hands-on, really study for it and try it out. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Just yesterday, I was doing the renewal on the Azure Administrator certification. So I have to do the renew once per year. And when I, when I get the renewal email telling me that I have six months to renew, I always book time on the same, same evening just to get it done. And yesterday when I was doing that, one of the questions was something about having a Kubernetes cluster in Azure and this and that doesn't work. What's the solution to fix this? And I know bits and pieces about Kubernetes, but I'm not intimately working with Kubernetes any, any longer. And I'm happy for that. And, and the, the options were some, somewhere between to fix this, do you need to upgrade your Kubernetes from 1.12 to 1.20 or not? And I'm like, I, I have no idea, but it sounds like a good idea. So why not upgrade? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We should probably do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, perhaps a reboot might help here. And that turned out to be the, 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 the right answer to that specific scenario, or, or that at least I hope it was because I did pass the renewal. So, so the last um, um, category or, or topic is, is, is designing security for data and applications. And that's about 20, 25% as well. So onboarding new applications, obviously as ready and app registrations and everything in there but also data at rest and setting encryption standards. And I, I feel there's so many angles here to securing Azure storage, securing disks for VMs, uh, securing databases. So I feel that if you've passed AZ500 or SC2 or 300, you have a good base on, 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 on passing SC100. But I also feel if you just did the MS 500, this has so much stuff on Azure core infrastructure security services that you need to ramp up more and perhaps do SC 200 as well before doing. So yeah. Toby, you, you mentioned the, the Microsoft Learn and, and labs on GitHub and whatnot. No schedules that I know of for those, but I trust they will be eventually available. Microsoft Learn typically takes months to, to get new content available because it's uh, it's uh, it's a fairly fairly uh, heavy process as I understand to get stuff published there it's really published and everything in the GitHub is more like yeah here we go if there's a bug you can you can do a PR but that's mostly it so so how do you plan on preparing for this because I trust you will you will try the SC100 at at some point if you can pass it. I will definitely do that. And, you know, as I usually go about it is I wait for the 
training material or the labs to show up, I will probably run through the training myself, either kind of as an MCT or, or a trainer um, to, to go through it and kind of deliver it to myself. Because, it, you know, I used to be a trainer for many years. I delivered in-classroom training on SharePoint, .NET development, Azure development, things like that. And one of the best ways that I found that I really had to learn something and force myself to learn it was to try and deliver a training to someone else. So whenever I try to uh, learn something new, like in this case, there will hopefully be a Microsoft training for it. So there will be like an official curriculum for that. Then I will, if I can, try to deliver that kind of to myself. Because what that means is really for each of the modules in that training, I have to ramp up on all the things and I have to do all the labs. and I have to really walk through everything. Maybe it takes a week, maybe it takes a month. doesn't really matter unless there's like a time constraint for why and when I need this specific exam, which there is currently not for me. And that's probably how I would go about it. Let the labs come out, the training material come out, um, and then kind of set myself in the train-to-trainer seat or the TTT mode where I then would study for becoming a trainer in this area because I, I was an MCT for many years. I delivered so many trainings. This is, you know, it can be stressful trying to cram all that info into your brain and, and kind of prepare for it. At the same time, when you do it with that outcome in mind that I need to be able to re-deliver this training five days, maybe eight hours a day, I need to talk about this, uh, these different topics in these different modules. And you really have to learn it because you will get questions that you have never had before. You need to be prepared for that. So, so for me, that's a very good approach. It might sound like a lot of work for some, uh, and it is quite a lot of work. But on the other hand, just like with the AC500, that's what I did. Go through everything like I was going to deliver it to someone else. It's a really great way to discover also when you do like a, a dry run. And, and I, I actually start my PowerPoint on my TV and I walk through it in my home office and I try to present it to an audience, which is you know usually only me then. Then I re- quickly realize when I enter a subject, I really have no idea about or when I enter a subject that I'm, tr- I'm just kind of winging it because I know kind of what it is, but I never had the experience with it. Then I just make a quick note of that and say, go back to this, actually do the labs, go through the, the checklist of material to read, then do it again. So for me, that's, that's my pro tip. If you have the time, if you have the ability, go through the labs and the training material for the exam and for the actual training. And then, yeah, take the exam after that. I really like this approach with, with the labs. Eventually, when they will become available, I, I doubt that that will get the SC100 labs on GitHub before the end of April. But eventually, when they do become available, have a look at those. That's that's one really useful and easy step to start with. The the second thing that I usually do, and it's it's a little bit more boring, but it's it's super useful, is to fact check each major bullet point in the requirements. And if, if the bullet point says designing security using Defender for Cloud, if I feel, well, I don't even know where to start on, on doing this, then I go to docsmicrosoft.com and start finding content for that and sort of craft my, my learning guide around those weak areas I might have on, 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 on the different topics in there. It takes a couple of hours to sort of build that, but then you at least have a reading list and, and a sort of 
list of things I need to learn more about. And then I can dive into, into multiple content sources to, to learn more about those. Um, so some additional thoughts. Uh, we already mentioned that perhaps do SC200 or 300 before this. The AZ500 super useful as well. Uh, and if you don't want to do the beta, perhaps wait until May, June. I usually see that it takes about two months after the beta to, for, for the real exam to arrive. And that might be more balanced in the sense that, that then you don't have extra questions to, to, to build on the real exam, but it's, it's more polished in the way. And as is customary, you have 1000 points, you have to have 700 the minimum, and the questions uh, are, are not equally ranked. So you might have one super tough question, five easy ones, and, and depending on, on the internal metrics, you get different points based on how you answer those. I'm, I'm planning to do this as well. Let's see if we can fit in the beta. If not, let's do this in May or June, and, and then we can share the thoughts here as well. On my list, I think I have like six exams that I, I want to complete before the summer vacation season here in the Nordic starts in, in July. But this is definitely now on the top three of the exams that I will, I will push through, and let's see how that goes. Um, the last bit, the unexpected question. And this week, it's going to be my turn to ask you, are you ready? Okay, shoot. So when people rent a car, like when you go to a conference and you rent a car, why do they never wash the car before they return it? Okay, that's a, this is a good question. But, you know, we talked about compliance in this episode. And one thing about <laughs> compliance is you read a lot of legal documents, as do I. And I have rented quite a few cars and I read the legal documents around it. And unfortunately, this answer will be super boring. Most car rental services does not require you to wash the car if it is not overly dirty or, or greasy or if you didn't really screw it up. If you, for example, drive in the mountain roads or salted roads or the muddy roads and you, you come back with a car that is full of mud, you might get a fee because they have to call in extra cleaning. Otherwise, the valet service always, for most of the, the big brands, the valet service always picks up the car after you drop it. They pick it up, drive it to their usually in-house washing place and just quickly wash it and then put it in the spot for the next customer. Um, so I know that because I, I read all the legal documents around it. Uh, and I also pay the fine ones, which is why I actually read all the legal documents around it. Because I, I returned on an airport, I think in, in yeah, somewhere in Europe, I returned a car that was perhaps a bit more muddy than it should have been because it was was you know not for the typical go to the conference kind of trip but it was in, in parity with that conference but a few days extra where we went off road uh, so it was like a, a four wheel drive SUV type of car and we could go off road and, and do some adventures uh, like car trekking if you will and we returned it and it looked like shit really and apparently it said in the uh, fine print that if if the car has something, something, uh, you know, sustainable mud or big pieces of mud or, or an obvious um, sign that it's not been used on the normal paved roads, then, you know, you have to return it in, in a, such a shape that you would want to pick it up yourself, blah, blah, blah. So 
super boring answer to that. I'm sure there's a more clever answer, but I did read the legal documents. I did pay the fine of, I think, 250 euros for the cleaning. So I don't want to do that again. <laughs> so you are one of those people when I'm in the line waiting to get the keys to my car, you're one of those people in the line who get the rental agreement and you start reading that on the counter and 15 yeah, people yeah. behind you are just waiting, get on with it so that we all can get our cars. But good to <laughs> no, know this no, because no. I, I've sort of skimmed through often the, 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 the rental or the lease agreements, but then, then the, the font size goes so small that you're sort of feeling, yeah, I don't want to spend time on this. Let's, let's mm. just get the car and get to the restaurant or whatever. Good to know. And I am not planning on washing it in the future either. Alrighty. Thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as well. Bye-bye. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.